Welcome everybody. We'll begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this book of Galatians. And we thank you that these extremely important issues of how Christian liberty and works and all of this relates. We thank you so much that these issues were settled early in church history and that they were settled under inspiration by an apostle. We just give you thanks that this precious word has been preserved for us. We ask that you will help us to plumb in the depths that you have for us this evening. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight we're going to be looking at the book of Galatians. Not a very long book, but a very important book in church history. Jesus Christ, our liberty. We'll begin with our, as we always do, with our flight acronym. First, the facts. The apostle uh, wrote the book of Galatians, the apostle Paul, addressing it to a group of church assemblies rather than to one. So the book of Galatians is different than the other epistles that Paul wrote. He usually wrote to a particular, to a particular church in a particular city but uh, there's no city of Galatia. Galatia is a region. So there were many churches in this region of Galatia. So he wrote it to a group of church assemblies rather than one. Paul was born in the city of Tarsus in the southern part of the region of Galatia. So this was kind of his home grounds. Uh, Galatia is in, in Asia Minor, the modern day Turkey. After his conversion to Christ around AD 34, Paul spent the remainder of his life ministering God's grace and preaching the gospel. He was executed for his faith around 67 AD. Now, there are two different theories regarding the date Galatians was written. An early date around AD 48 and a late date around AD 55. And I'll talk more about that a little bit later. Paul's forceful little letter of Galatians addressed the Galatian church's legalism and the false gospel of works. Galatians is a classic statement of the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone. Written to counter false teachers who are saying that a person must keep the Jewish law to be righteous before God. Much like Paul's epistle to the Romans, Galatians has played a strategic role in the history of the Christian church. The letter had a notable impact on the life of Protestant giant Martin Luther. The landmarks, what, what the book is about, in Galatians, Paul addressed the problems raised by the oppressive theology of certain Jewish legalizers who had caused believers in Galatia to trade their freedom in Christ for bondage to the law. Paul also defended the gospel and his apostleship, described the differences between law and grace, and explained the practical application of these truths. So he not only explained the differences between law and grace, but he also told us how to apply this information in our lives. The itinerary, the outline of the book of Galatians, 
In the first two chapters, we have liberty stated, personal vindication of Paul. Then in the chapters three through four, we have liberty defended. We have a doctrinal justification for the gospel of grace. And then finally, in, in chapters five and six, we have liberty applied, a practical application of this gospel of grace in our lives as Christians. Gospel. Galatians is the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. It emphasizes that freedom from sin is accompanied by freedom from the law and the doctrines of man. The law brings a curse upon us because we can never fulfill its demands. But because Jesus lived a perfect life and fulfilled its demands, he was able to take our place and take the punishment we deserved, becoming the curse for us, suffering its consequences, and defeating it once and for all by rising from the dead. As Paul wrote in Galatians 3, 13 and 14, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Capital punishment by stoning was part of the Jewish law, but crucifixion wasn't. Stoning was a holy remedy, but being nailed to a cross was considered to be defiling, an unclean death for an unholy people. Paul's point was that Jesus died in a way that the Jews considered cursed. The weight of the true curse, our sins, was then placed on him. And because of that, he was able to purchase for us freedom from sin and perfect liberty in Christ. He was the perfect substitute for us, the only one who could bear the weight of all our sin. Only Jesus could do it. And that's why salvation is a gift of God's grace and not something any human being could ever earn. Now the history surrounding Galatia is interesting. During the third century BC, some Celtic people from Gaul, that's in modern day France, migrated to the inner plateau of Asia Minor and established a kingdom. Under Amentus, king, the king of, of the Gauls, this is in the first century now, BC, so a little bit later, the kingdom extended to Pisidia, Lyconia, and other places in what is now Turkey. And most of the immigrants remained when on the death of Amentus in 25 BC, the Romans took over and made it into the province of Galatia. So it was an independent kingdom, but then the Romans took it over and made it a province of the Roman Empire. Uh, by the way, incidentally, the, the Apostle Paul was born in, in southern Galatia, and because it was a Roman province, Paul was born a Roman citizen. This comes up in the book of Acts when Paul is speaking to a, a Roman soldier, and the Roman soldier says that he uh, had to purchase his citizenship, and Paul comments that he was, he was born a citizen, and that's how he was born a citizen. He happened to be born in this, in this province of Galatia. 
But the problem for us is whether the Galatians to which this epistle is addressed refers to ethnic Galatians in the north of the province or to the southerners of various races who were included in the Roman province. So the, the Gauls, the ethnic Galatians, lived in the northern part of this territory, but the southern part of the territory uh, where Paul established churches was uh, made up of many races, not, not uh, just the Gauls. In fact, there probably weren't many Gauls, many Galatians in the, in the southern part of Galatia. So I'll talk about this more later on. Toward the end of the third century AD, the southern area was detached. So this is the third century AD now, long after the New Testament. The southern area was detached and the province was reduced to the northern sector. So beginning in, in the third century, just the northern part of Galatia was called Galatia. And that's probably what uh, caused some of the confusion. Traditionally, Galatia has thus been understood as a northern area. But was this the way Paul used the term in the first century? The apostle visited the southern area on his first missionary journey, but he is never explicitly said to have visited the northern area, though many think that is what is meant in Acts 16.6 and 18.23. It does mention Galatia, but it doesn't specifically say anything about northern Galatia. But some people think that Paul must have visited northern Galatia and planted some churches there, although scripture doesn't tell us that. So here, here's a map of Galatia. You can see the uh, Asia Minor, the, what is today Turkey, and Galatia is in, is in that, it's part of that. And you, what you will no, notice here is that all of the churches that, that Paul planted in, in the book of Acts in Galatia are in the southern part of Galatia. There, there aren't any churches that we're told about that Paul planted in, in the northern part of Galatia. So that will be significant when we discuss the, the dating of local relations. So now we go to the travel tips, things that we can learn from the book of Galatians. Hold to the true gospel of grace. The Galatians had turned to a different gospel one based on works instead of grace. Paul said that if anyone preached a gospel other than the one he had preached, then let him be accursed. No matter how sweet a preacher's words are, even if they come from an angel, as Paul said, if they don't match up with what the Bible says, they are false. And you are to reject them completely. Hold on to your liberty in Christ. Jesus set you free from the bondage of sin, from human nature and its shackles. So why would you chain yourself to those same things again? Jesus has set you free not only from sin, but also from man-made religious rules. You're free from any regulation anyone tries to add to the gospel, no matter how convincing it sounds or who is prescribing it. To fully receive God's grace, you must first acknowledge your sin. No one can be good enough to earn their way to salvation. 
but unless you acknowledge you're a sinner, you'll never see your need for a savior. The law is a source of blessing for the perfect, for the rest of us, and yes, that's all of us. It brings a curse for which only Christ can redeem us. The law says, do this and live, whereas faith says, believe this and live. Christians are able to walk in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in every single believer, energizing our new nature in Christ, our liberty and freedom from sin, while helping us resist the impulses of our flesh. Freedom in Christ is not about doing what you want, but doing what Christ wants, loving other people and having a servant's heart. That produces what Paul called the fruit of the Spirit, Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The theme of Galatians, Galatians insists on Christian liberty from any doctrine of salvation that requires human effort in addition to divine grace, and also on the unity of all believers in Christ. Paul makes it clear that there aren't uh, two categories of Christians, the elite Christians and then the, the uh, second-class Christians. There's unity in the body of Christ. The key verse of Galatians, uh, chapter 2, verse 16, know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Now we'll get to the tricky question of when was Galatians written? There are two theories regarding the date Galatians was written. The North Galatian theory, also known as the geographical view, puts the date of authorship uh, circa AD 55 when Paul was in Ephesus. It's called the uh, geographical view because this view emphasizes that, it, that Paul's letter to the Galatians must be to the true Galatians, that the people who are actually descended from the Gauls who settled in this area. So that was in the north part of, of Galatia. And Paul didn't visit that area, we don't think, until maybe his, his second missionary journey, whereas he visited the South in his first missionary journey. The South Galatian theory, also known as the political view, in other words, it's looking at Galatia as a uh, Roman province, a political division of the Roman Empire, regardless of, of who lived there. So it's known as a political view. It puts the native authorship around AD 48, several years earlier when Paul was in Antioch, perhaps establishing the need for church-wide clarification on the doctrine of salvation by grace. So under this view, this uh, book of Galatians was written prior to the, the uh, Jerusalem Council that finally dealt with this issue of, of the relationship between grace and works.
So I've, I've compiled a, a table here that I, I think will help you to understand the, the basics of these two theories about the dating of Galatians, the, the North Galatian theory and the South Galatian theory. So under the North Galatian theory, Paul's first, first missionary journey took place. Then the Jerusalem Council came and then Paul's second missionary journey in which the people who hold this theory believe that, that Paul visited the northern area of Galatia. And so after that, then Galatians was written. The epistle to the Galatians was written around AD 55. But in the South Galatian theory, the first missionary journey of Paul took place. And then after that, the book of Galatians was written in around AD 48, prior to the Jerusalem Council, and then prior also to the second missionary journey. So this will give you an idea of where the writing of the Epistle to the Galatians fits in historically with these two different views, two different theories. So there are reasons for preferring the Southern Galatian theory, and I, I'll lay my cards on the table. I, I prefer the, the Southern Galatian theory, the, the early date. There is no clear scriptural evidence Paul ever went to Northern Galatia. It is even doubtful that he visited the Northern region on his second missionary journey. Some think he did, but it doesn't specifically say that. There's no record of any such visits in Acts 14 and 16 which mention Galatia, but they don't specify Northern Galatia. Barnabas, an associate of Paul's, was well known in the Southern part of Galatia. There are three references to him in, in the epistle to the Galatians. And we read about him accompanying Paul to Southern Galatia in the book of Acts. So he was Paul's companion in South Galatia but not on the alleged journey to Northern Galatia. So that's another reason why we were the, the Southern Galatian theory. In the list of men who accompanied Paul to deliver a collection for the poor in the Jerusalem church, there is no representative from North Galatia, whereas two men, Gaius and Timothy, both of South Galatia are mentioned. So we have two Southern Galatians mentioned there. If Paul had written the letter after the Jerusalem Council, he would probably have capitalized on that council's decree favoring Gentile freedom from the Mosaic law, the main topic under discussion in Galatians. This implies that the letter was written before the council met. So if the council had already met, he surely would have used that to bolster his, his arguments but there's no mention of it in the book of Galatians. It is doubtful that Peter would have vacillated. As we know from the book of Galatians, he, he withdraw, withdrew uh, from table fellowship with the Gentiles. It's doubtful if he would have done that as he did in, as we were told in Galatians chapter two, after the Jerusalem council, where he strongly supported the position of freedom from the Mosaic law. By the time Paul went through Northern Galatia, if he did so at all on his second journey, 
Peter had declared that not even Jews were able to keep the law. So Peter was strongly supportive of this idea of freedom from the law after the, after the Jerusalem Council. So it's doubtful that he would have vacillated after that. So this must have been before, early on. The other issue that we need to look at it to uh, help us resolve this issue of the date that Galatians was written is the mention in the, in the book of Galatians, chapter 2, verse 1, of Paul's visit to Jerusalem. Which visit was this? Galatians 2.1 refers to a trip by Paul to Jerusalem. The determination of which trip this is adds further evidence regarding when the epistle to the Galatians was written. There are three trips to consider. We'll consider these three trips. I mean, there's a, a fourth trip, which is when Paul was arrested uh, later on in the book of Acts. So we don't need to consider that one because that was definitely after after the book of Galatians. But here's, here's the three that we need to consider. Paul's first trip to Jerusalem after his conversion on the road to Damascus is recorded in Acts 9.26. Now this is not the trip in Galatians 2.1. This trip is referred to in Galatians 1.18. So nobody thinks that this first trip was the one that's being talked about in 2.1. But here's the, the two that are considered. Paul's second trip was to deliver a collection for famine relief. This is in Acts 11.30. This is the visit preferred by those who hold the southern view. Paul's third trip was for the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. This is the trip preferred by those who hold the northern view. So here are some reasons for believing that 2.1 refers to the famine relief visit. When Paul uses the word again in Galatians 2.1, it literally means his second visit. To say that 2.1 refers to Paul's third visit, one must explain why he skips over his second and uses again to refer to his third. If 2.1 refers to Paul's second visit, it would, be, it would better explain why there are no references to the Jerusalem Council's decrees. I mentioned this earlier. It had not taken, not yet taken place. If 2.1 refers to Paul's second visit, it would better explain Peter's inconsistent behavior, refusing to eat with Gentiles. It's doubtful that he would have engaged in such behavior if the Jerusalem Council had already convened. I also mentioned this earlier. So this, these are some reasons to think that this trip that's referred to in Galatians 2.1 is that famine relief visit. There are important differences between Galatians 2 and Acts 15. Galatians 2 describes a private visit, but Acts 15 describes a public visit and is unlikely to be the one in Galatians 2.1. So now let's take a, a look at the text of the book of Galatians. 
First of all, as you would expect, there's an introduction in the first 10 verses. The letter opens with a greeting in which Paul expresses his apostleship, for he wishes to establish his authority against the Judaizers. In place of the usual thanksgiving for his audience, Paul immediately and heatedly introduces the reason for his writing. He is shocked that the Galatian Christians are deserting to another gospel, which is not really a gospel at all. The next section of the Epistle to the Galatians is an autobiographical argument. Now Paul puts forward an autobiographical argument for the gospel of God's grace over against the Judaizing message, which requires adherence to the Mosaic law for salvation. This is what the Judaizers are claiming. He states that the, this gospel came to him by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. It certainly could not have come from his past, he argues, for before his divine call, he had been zealous for Judaism. Nor did he learn it from the apostles in Jerusalem, for he did not even meet with them until three years after his conversion. And when he did visit Jerusalem, he only saw Peter and James, the, the James who was the, the brother of Jesus. He stayed only 15 days, and he didn't become acquainted with the Judean Christians at large. Since the gospel of grace could not have come from his Jewish past or from his Christian contacts in Jerusalem, it must have come from God. So Paul is establishing his apostleship and establishing his authority to talk about this gospel of grace. When he visited Jerusalem again after 14 years, and the 14 years can be figured either from his call or from his first visit to Jerusalem. That's not real clear. The leaders there, James, Peter, and John, formally acknowledged the correctness of the gospel of grace that he had been preaching to the Gentiles. They did so by giving him the right hand of fellowship. Furthermore, and this is significant, they did not require Titus, his Gentile companion, to be circumcised. This is the famous incident where Peter came to Syrian Antioch. Um, as happened so many times in the New Testament, um, there are two places with the same name, and that can be confusing. Um, there's an Antioch in Syria, and the, the uh, eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea, but there's also an Antioch in Galatia. And we usually refer that refer to that as Pisidian Antioch to distinguish it from this Antioch that's in Syria. But this uh, incident happened in the Syrian Antioch. When coming to Antioch, Syria, Peter at first ate with Gentile Christians, but then he yielded to pressure from the Judaizers. Paul rebuked him publicly. Now, despite much present opinion to the contrary, the implication seems to be that Peter yielded to the rebuke. Many modern scholars don't think that, that Peter did yield to the rebuke, but seems to be the case uh, in, in Scripture. If, if 
Peter hadn't yielded, then uh, Paul would hardly have brought up the incident as an argument in his favor. So the fact that even Peter stood rebuked by Paul demonstrates the authority of Paul's gospel of grace. Justify. Paul's summary of his reprimand to Peter contains the germ of his theological argument to follow. Here Paul uses the term justify, which appears repeatedly, for God's treating believers in Christ as just, that is righteous, even though they are sinners. In classical Greek, the term meant almost the opposite, to treat people justly, especially to secure justice for the righteous by punishing the wicked. Now, of course, we know from the standpoint that there are no righteous people. But as this term was used in classical Greek, that's what it meant, to, to treat people justly by punishing the wicked. But Paul's use of justify echoes Old Testament usage, especially in Isaiah, where God graciously intervenes to th set things right between himself and human beings. God's gracious intervention remains just, however, for Christ suffered the penalty for our sins. And so it would be unjust if God were to condemn a believer in Christ. So justify, as it is used by Paul, talks about the, the sinner being declared righteous on faith in Christ because Christ died, Christ suffered the punishment for us. The section of, of uh, chapter 2, verses 17 through 21, can be uh, somewhat hard to follow. Uh, a paraphrase may aid the understanding. So here, here's the, the paraphrase. If we have to forsake the Mosaic law to be justified by faith in Christ, does Christ encourage sin? No. Rather, if I go back to that law, I imply I was sinning in abandoning it, but I do not sin in abandoning it, for Christ died under its judgment against sin. And if human beings could become righteous through keeping the law, he did not need to die. As a believer, I died with him in the sense that God counts Christ's death as mine too. The law has no authority over a dead person especially one who has died under its penalty. Having died with Christ then, I am no longer obligated to keep the law, but he rose and lives in me so that I live now by faith in him. The next section of Galatians, Paul brings out theological arguments for this gospel of grace that he is promoting. Paul now develops his theological argument. It features three oppositions. Law versus grace and promise. Works versus faith. And flesh versus the spirit. On the basis of these oppositions, Paul argues that if we are justified by faith at the start, we should continue by faith rather than by the law. 
Abraham was justified long before the law was given. So even in the Old Testament, righteousness came by faith, not by the law. The law can only curse or condemn because no one obeys it entirely. Christ died to deliver us from the law and its inevitable curse. God's making a covenant with Abraham before giving the law through Moses indicates that the Abrahamic covenant is more basic than the law. The law then did not annul it. On God's side, the Abrahamic covenant consisted of a promise to bless Abraham's seed. On the side of human beings, an acceptance of God's promise by faith. Abraham's seed consists of Christ plus all those incorporated into him by following Abraham's example of faith. The law of Moses did have a purpose, but a temporary one. It was to lead people to Christ as ancient slave tutors led children to school. The law accomplished this purpose by making people keenly aware of their inability to make themselves righteous. Being under the law, therefore, was like being minors or slaves. But in Christ, people live as free adults, adopted into God's family as sons and heirs, with grown-up privileges and responsibilities. So why revert to an inferior status? Once we have become adults, why go back to being a, a child or a slave? Paul then recalls how the Galatians accepted his message at their conversion, and he pleads with them to accept his present message as they did his first. They gladly received his, his message about salvation, but now they suddenly think they need to go back to um, works. He further supports his argument in rabbinic style by allegorizing an Old Testament story. The uh, significant difference, of course, is that Paul was doing this under the direction of the Holy Spirit. He wasn't just making up an interesting story. He was giving a scripture. So Hagar, the slave woman, stands for Mount Sinai, which in turn stands for the Mosaic Law in its headquarters in Jerusalem. Ishmael, her slave-born son, stands for those who are enslaved to the law. Sarah stands for Christianity in its capital, the heavenly Jerusalem. Isaac, her promised and freeborn son, stands for all the spiritual children of Abraham. That is, those who follow Abraham's example of faith and are therefore freed in Christ from the law. The last major section of the letter warns against libertinism or antinomianism, literally against lawism. The attitude that freedom from the law means license to sin. Not so, writes Paul. Christians must conduct themselves according to the Holy Spirit rather than according to the flesh, the sinful urge. Moreover, they must lovingly help others, especially their fellow Christians, and give liberally to those who minister the gospel.
to his prolonged attack on the Judaizers' legalism, Paul appends numerous precepts governing Christian conduct. So he doesn't want to leave his readers thinking that um, because they are freed from works that therefore they can just live any way they want. He gave them precepts governing Christian conduct. These show that legalism does not consist merely in having rules. The books of the New Testament contain many rules of behavior. Legalism is rather the imposition of wrong rules, and particularly more rules than a situation warrants. So that in a maze of minutiae, people lose their ability to distinguish the more important from the less important, the principle from its application. Legalism also includes a striving for merit in one's obedience, over against the recognition that obedience is nothing more than one's duty. The personal dimension of enjoying fellowship with God on the basis of his grace alone is lost. Paul adds a conclusion in his own handwriting. The large letters that he uses may be for emphasis, alternatively, poor eyesight or lack of facility and penmanship necessitated them. Remember that uh, Paul, in his preaching of the gospel, was beaten severely. So we don't know uh, what effect that had on his body. Uh, Paul charges that the Judaizers are motivated by a desire to avoid persecution from unbelieving Jews and by ambition to boast that they are able to steal converts from him, from Paul. By way of contrast, he calls attention to the sufferings he has gladly endured for his message and appeals to the Galatians that they themselves judge who has the pure motives, he or the Judaizers. Now let's take a look at some of the alleged contradictions in, in the book of Galatians. We'll see a couple of those. Uh, was Christ blessed or cursed? Paul declares that Christ was cursed of God having become a curse for us. However, the Bible declares repeatedly that Christ was blessed of God. Turn back in Psalm 72:17 in the New Testament, Romans 9, 5. The one worthy to receive glory and blessing forever, we read in Revelation 5, 12. Is Christ blessed or cursed? These passages view Christ from different aspects. He is blessed in heaven, but he came up, became a curse for us on earth. He is blessed in himself, but was cursed for us on the cross. Actually, as the perfect son of God, he is the most blessed of all persons. Yet judicially, as he became our substitute, he was the most cursed of all. The difference is manifest in this contrast. Christ was blessed of God, actually. Christ was cursed of God, judicially. Christ was blessed of God for who he is. He was cursed of God for what he did for us. He was blessed of God in heaven, 
He was cursed of God on the cross. He was blessed of God for the kind of person he is. And he was cursed of God for the kind of death he died. Remember the Jews looked upon being nailed to a tree as a particularly cursed kind of death, particularly cursed kind of execution. Another issue that comes up is whether we should bear others' burdens or just our own burdens. In Galatians 6.2, Paul exhorts us to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. But only a few verses later, he says, every man shall bear his own burden. So are we to bear others' burdens or just our own? The word for burden is, is different in each case. In the first passage, Paul urges sympathy for others. In verse 5, he is speaking of taking responsibility for ourselves. There is no conflict between being accountable for our own lives and also being helpful to others. Another aspect of this apparent contradiction is the present future dimension. When Paul urges Christians to bear one another's burdens, he means that they should help one another in their present difficulties. But at the future judgment, each person will answer to God for his own conduct alone. So at the future judgment, we, we can't help others and others can't help us. Each person is responsible for his own actions. I um, show this as much as I can <laughs> every chance I get. Because it's, uh, it's such a good illustration of how we need to study our Bibles. So I showed this um, in relation to the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus and Acts chapter 7 where Stephen is giving his sermon just before he's martyred and also here in Galatians chapter 3. One of the, the principles of, of Bible study is precept must be upon precept, line upon line, here alone, and there alone. In other words, you can't just read one verse or one passage about a particular subject and think that you know everything that the Bible has to say about that subject. You must consider uh, all of the passages that relate to that particular subject. And that is certainly true of this verse we're going to look at in Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, it says this. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say unto seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed who is Christ. And I say this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not revoke a covenant that was previously ratified by God and cancel the promise. So if you just read that passage, you don't uh, see any particular problem with it. But now let's look at a 
verse from the book of Exodus. A couple of verses from Exodus 12. Now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelled in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years, to the very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Uh, now you may, you may see some apparent difficulty here. And then the situation is further complicated by this verse in Genesis, Genesis 15, 13. Then the Lord said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So now we're beginning to see some confusion here, possibly. Uh, about 430 years and when did that begin and what about the 400 years and how can we fit all of this together? And I mentioned before, um, in Acts chapter 7, where Stephen is speaking, and God, and God spoke to this effect, that his, Abraham's offspring, would be sojourners in the land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. So he also talked about 400 years. So how do we fit all of this stuff together? So if the promises to Abraham, to the Exodus and the giving of the law was 430 years. Well then, how could the oppression in Egypt possibly be 430 years? Because it takes some time between the time that promises were given to Abraham and the time that uh, Jacob went down to Egypt. So how do we reconcile all of this? Well. When we put all of these scriptures together, we find that from the time the promises were given to Abraham to the time that Isaac was born was 30 years. So that's the difference between the 430 years and the 400 years. From the time that Isaac was born to the time that Jacob was born was 60 years. From the time that Jacob was born to the time that Jacob went down into Egypt was 130 years, where you, you find that out in the, in the book of Genesis, where the Pharaoh asks Joseph how old his father is, and, and he tells him that he's 130 years old. So, by process of elimination, the time from Jacob going down to Egypt to the time of the Exodus, and the giving of the law, was 210 years. So, we once again, have to have to put all the scriptures together and consider what they all say. We can't just read one verse or one passage and think that we know everything about a subject. The Septuagint uh, attempts to explain this a little bit. Uh, the Septuagint of, of Exodus 12:40 says, "Of the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Canaan and Egypt was 430 years." So they didn't dwell in Egypt for the full 430 years. For 430 years were, some of their sojourn was spent in Canaan and some was spent in Egypt. Um, this is just a, a brief aside, the, the fruit of the spirit. 
one of the things that, that you may not have noticed about the fruit of the spirit is that there are nine of these items of, of these um, aspects that make up the fruit of the spirit. The first three, love, joy, peace, are toward God. The second three, long-suffering, kindness, and goodness, are toward others. And then the, the final three, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, are toward myself. In other words, um, qualities, attributes that I have within myself. So the first three are toward God, the next three are toward others, and the last three are toward myself. What is the contribution of the book of Galatians? This short letter has an importance all out of proportion to its size. There is always a tendency for people to think that their salvation, however they understand their salvation, is something that is to be bought, to be brought about by their own achievement. How they understand salvation may vary and the kind of achievement they see as necessary may correspondingly vary, but that their eternal destiny rests in their own hands seems a, seems a truism so obvious that it's, it scarcely needs stating, so they think. Christianity has often been understood as nothing more than a system of morality, as the careful observance of the sacramental system, as conformity to standards, as linking up with others in the church, and so on. There is always a need for Paul's forthright setting out of the truth that justification comes only through faith in Christ. This must be said over against those who stress the importance of works done in accordance with Torah or any other achievement. The Christian way stresses what God has done in Christ rather than what the sinners do. There can be no improvement on the divine action by any human achievement, either by way of ritual observance or moral improvement. The cross is the one way of salvation, and no part of scripture makes this clearer than does the epistle to the Galatians. We should not miss the importance of Paul's appeal to Abraham. This takes the reader back to a time when the law had not been given covenant established with Abraham takes precedence over the law. The law cannot annul the promise of God. Those who were forsaking civil reliance on the promise of God were turning from the divinely appointed way and mistaking the real purpose of the law. If Paul's Christian friend would give proper consideration to the example of Abraham, they would see the serious error into which they were falling when they began to rely on the Torah. If we read the account of Abraham and his faith in its proper sequence in the unfolding history of redemption, instead of anachronistically assuming with many Jews that Abraham must have kept the law, it becomes clear that God's way has always been the way of promise and faith. In short, this whole book contributes to how Christians ought to be putting their Bibles together. Moreover, Paul insists that Christ came at the appointed time 
to redeem enslaved sinners. And he further specifies that Christ did this work of redemption by becoming a curse for us. This is a significant contribution to our understanding of the atonement. Along with the emphasis on justification by faith in Christ is an emphasis on Christian freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Believers are literally to walk by the Spirit. Even those who are justified by faith in Christ sometimes find it easy to subject themselves to the slavery of a system. Paul's words remain the classic expression of the liberty that is the heritage of everyone who is in Christ. Galatians is a constant reminder of how important it is to understand what the Christian faith implies for Christian living. Even Peter and Barnabas would go astray. Paul does not complain of their theology, but of their practice, when those who belong to the circumcision group induce them to withdraw from table fellowship with Gentiles. No letter makes clearer than this one the importance of living out all the implications with salvation through the cross. And now I'll give you some final thoughts here. The false teachers didn't like Paul's message because they thought preaching grace was in effect preaching lawlessness. That people would say, I'm under grace so I can do whatever I want. They reasoned that the law was necessary to keep believers in line. But Paul's point was that grace will do in a person what the law never could. John Bunyan, the persecuted English author of Pilgrim's Progress, beautifully summed up the difference in a poem, the difference between law and grace. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives, it <clears throat> and gives us wings. Close now with a, a word of prayer. Father, we come before you and thank you once again for this precious truth that you established so many centuries ago. And we are so thankful that we don't have to wrestle with these questions or be uncertain about them. That you gave us definitive answers and explanations back in the first century through your apostle. And you preserved this for us. And that we thank you. We ask that you would help us to understand and rely upon the gospel. Because the same gospel that brought about our salvation will preserve us until your son returns for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.